Over 20 plus years, I have learned that, you know, this work is hard, that movements are messy and they are messy because they are comprised of very human people who are trying to do something that they haven't done before. From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. And that's Alicia Garza, the organizer and advocate who co-founded the Black Lives Matter movement. We spoke recently at a virtual Women Rule event, looking back at 2020, a year when Americans endured crises from the pandemic, the economic recession, racial injustices, and a highly contentious presidential election. Through it all, women have often taken the lead. And as we head into 2021, I wanted to talk with Alicia about how she's looking to set the course in activism for the year to come. Alicia's life and activism started young. I first got involved when I was 12 years old, and there was a huge fight happening in my school district about whether or not to allow contraceptions in, in school nurses' offices, uh, access to it. And for me, it felt really important to me that people like my mother, like myself, had the opportunity to choose when and if we wanted to start a family, but not only that, to be able to have the tools to protect ourselves. Now, she's behind one of the campaigns that defined 2020. Black Lives Matter, which has grown from a hashtag into the civil rights movement of our time. We spoke about what the path was like and how she learned to channel her frustration into something productive. No change happens by sitting on your couch and throwing your shoes at the television, which I am known to do sometimes. All change happens by rolling up your sleeves and getting involved. And now, here's my conversation with Alicia Garza. Welcome to the Women Rule Virtual Stage. Uh, Alicia Garza, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and principal at Black Futures Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here this morning. I wanted to start on a couple of kind of more newsy notes here. One of the biggest news stories right now that so many of us in Washington are focused on is about the diversity of Joe Biden's cabinet and senior staff. There's been a lot of frustration uh, that up until naming retired General Lloyd Austin as defense secretary, which have confirmed he would be the first black defense secretary, that they haven't been doing enough. Where do you where do you stand on this issue? What are you hoping to see? Well, a few things. And to quote my sister, Erin Haynes, from the 19th and from AP, you know, she always says it's not just the first, but it's the only. And I think that that's important for us to lift up here that, you know, we have these conversations about diversity or representation as if they are good things to do or nice things to do, like their college catalogs, right? Where we've got to have one of each person to really feel like our decision makers and our rule makers are representative. But here's the facts. The facts are that for the last 300 plus years in this country, the rules have been made by white, cisgender, heterosexual men. But the population of this country is not that. And I think, you know, one of the things that has activated the conservative movement has been this real fear about demographic change, right? What will happen when the white uh, majority is no longer a majority. And I think for this administration that has said time and time again, not just that they value diversity, but that they value the experiences that people bring to thinking about how to solve some of the biggest problems that are facing our country today, it is really more than unfortunate that we're not seeing 
more people who reflect the soul of America, but also reflect the wide range of experiences and frankly, the grief and the pain that folks have been uh, living under, right? Having been left out and left behind, not just from uh, you know, positions of power, but from access to the things that we need to live well. And that is why it's important to see women in this cabinet. That's why it's important to see black people in this cabinet and immigrants and trans folks and disabled people and on and on, because it is their experiences that help us shape what the best solutions are. And so it's really a missed opportunity for this administration to not be looking at this in that way. And it's a missed opportunity to really mark a concrete shift from what we're coming out of with the Trump administration. And so what I'm hoping over the next uh, couple of weeks is that there's an acceleration of thinking differently about who needs to hold these positions and why. When you think about that, I, I, I take to, to heart what you just said, right? It's not just about having one or having, you know, kind of a, somebody check each of those boxes. One of the other debates that's going on right now is some of the framing of these issues that are systemic in this country that are, are kind of finally now coming to er, you know, coming to the fore, probably at a more national level, not that they haven't been bubbling up for a long time. Uh, that, that has really been one of the issues around defund uh, the police. You had former President Barack Obama recently said, you know, slogans like to fund the police, they're not helpful because they divide. They don't kind of bring people together towards solutions. Uh, New York Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, pushed back on him. You know, she tweeted, to folks who complain, protest demands make others uncomfortable. That's the point. What's your take? You've been a part of a lot of the social justice movement for a very long time. Well, I have a few things to say about this. I mean, number one, uh, this isn't the first our first time at the rodeo. And I think this movement, which really helped to push this campaign over the finish line, was used as a political football all throughout this election cycle. And that was true in 2016 as well. So this isn't a new uh, phenomenon for us. I, I do think, though, that one of the things that I am a little bit tired of doing is having these circular conversations that I think really miss the point. There was a lot of valuable airspace that was used to be condescending to the very people who have opened the imagination of what this country can be and how we can get closer to the promise that this country has offered for so many. And frankly, what we haven't heard, and this is where I feel like we should be focused, is, okay, well, what are you going to do? Because all through this campaign cycle, what we didn't hear was anything really substantive about what kinds of changes or reforms the Biden administration was going to make the pillars of its uh, tenure. What we haven't heard, right, are what are the mechanisms that are going to be shifted in order to address two very concrete problems. One of those problems is that there is no accountability when Black people or anybody else is murdered by police officers. And we see this time and time again. In fact, there were just a couple of cases this week. And then the second question is, you know, how are we going to deal with the fact that we are using police to deal with problems that are not 
dealt with through law enforcement. They are actually dealt with by investing in a safety net and in community infrastructure. And that is just a fact. We cannot continue to argue about whether or not police are the best uh, mechanism to address homelessness. They're not. It's not an argument. We cannot continue to argue about whether or not police are the best way to address mental health crises. They are not. Um, it's not even an argument. And so what I want to hear from former President Barack Obama, if he is going to use his vast platform for these conversations, what I want to hear from uh, President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is, well, what are you going to do? And that's what we have not heard amidst all of this hoopla about defund the police. I agree with you. I think it's been in, in, interesting is the wrong word, but you've really seen this kind of divide of what the, the federal level be paralyzed, right? I think there's an agreement that there's a problem, particularly among Democrats, but they don't seem to have any real ability to find what that path forward is. You've seen a lot more work at the you know city, local level, even some of the states. What what are one or two things? I mean, when you look at this, that you would say. This is something concrete at the federal level here in Washington that a lot of our audience is working as, a, you know, in and a part of in Congress, at the White House, downtown, uh, in, in influential jobs. What are one or two things that you would like to see be really top priority? I mean, there's a million, but first at the top of the list, uh, I would put the omnibus legislation that this movement has put forward, which is in the form of the Breathe Act. There are several pages of concrete policy ideas to address both the overinvestment in incarceration and criminalization and the underinvestment in communities. I will also offer that, you know, there's a lot of things that are out there right now that the House has passed and that is waiting on the Senate to take any kind of action on. There's justice and policing, which, you know, is a good start. I don't think it goes far enough, but it does address some of the major things that need to be talked about right now, like qualified immunity, like uh, rebuilding and strengthening the Department of Justice and their oversight over police departments across the country. We know that policing is very much a local and state issue, but the federal government sets the tone for what is going to be acceptable in cities and states. And it also moves money to cities and states to address these disparities. And so those are things that can be done right now. But instead, we're having a lot of conversation about conservative, moderate and progressive when that is not what people feel in our communities. They don't use those terms to describe them. Themselves. What they know is that there's an empty seat at the dinner table because their loved one has been taken by the police because of a mental health crisis. And what they also know is that we've been in the middle of a global pandemic for nine months. And if they were lucky, they got $1,200. So that's what I think most Americans are thinking about right now, particularly those from our communities. I want to take a step back. Uh, you were the co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. We're now our principal at Black Futures Lab, we're also involved with the supermajority. Um, a lot of women role is looking at how women can get involved and rise up in leadership, whether that's in the public sector or in the private sector. When did you first get involved in political activism? I first got involved when I was 12 years old, and there was a huge fight happening in my school district about whether or not to allow contraceptions in, in school nurses' offices, uh, access to it. And this is, of course, during the first Bush administration when, you know, the, the political context was all about focus on the family and family values being inserted um, into every social space that we could think of. But of course, this also had economic 
uh, implications. And for me, as somebody who grew up with a mother who got pregnant with me while she was in a relationship that she thought was going to last forever, and then it disintegrated right before I was born, it felt really important to me that people like my mother, like myself, had the opportunity to choose when and if we wanted to start a family, but not only that, to be able to have the tools to protect ourselves. And that's how I got involved. And I'll say that since that time, what I have learned is that um, what we have to do is keep coming coming back to our purpose over and over again to stay involved. Because over 20 plus years, I have learned that, you know, this work is hard, that movements are messy and they are messy because they are comprised of very human people who are trying to do something that they haven't done before. And so with that being said, what gets me out of bed every single day, especially for the last four years under this administration, has really been coming back to what it is that I care about and everything that I'm focused on is making sure that Black communities are powerful in every aspect of our lives, and in particular in the political processes that shape and govern our lives. I was going to say 12 is a, is a very early starting point. I, I imagine things have changed quite a bit. I mean, you're credited with the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Is it easier to organize now? Or to your point, there's a lot of different priorities and people kind of get into these things for uh, you know a, a wide variety of reasons. What's kind of your North Star on this? Yeah, I mean, my North Star is this. I'm really proud to have been able to contribute the smallest piece to this huge global movement that is not only changing conversations, but it's changing laws. And now where I spend the most of my time is at the Black Futures Lab and the Black to the Future Action Fund to try and fill gaps that I see in our infrastructure where um, there are not enough of us looking at how we legislate, how we make the rules, how we shape the rules, how we change the rules of not just policy, but of our society and our culture, and how we do so in a way that doesn't just rely on symbols, but definitely relies on substance. And one thing I know about our communities is that we are both and all the time. <laughs> and so I really want to make sure that that is an integral part of our political system, but also that Black communities are an integral part of a multiracial movement that is aimed towards building a multiracial democracy. So that is my North Star. And in order for us to get there, I'm super focused on what it means to organize black folks who are not already activists, who are not already, you know, um, you know, uh, um, as as a part of this kind of uh, uh, progressive political world. It's one of the biggest challenges that I think we face in politics today. And I know my sister Latasha talked about this in the previous panel, that black communities are often exalted for the ways in which we save democracy. But we don't quite look at the fact that black communities are deeply underrepresented in the progressive community and ask ourselves why. It's not because black communities are not organizable and it's not because we are disorganized. It's because frankly, we have not been seen as a priority up and down the board, just like we haven't been seen as a priority up and down the ticket. So I'm really 
grateful to be able to spend my time focusing on what it means to build black political power. And that is my North Star that I'm following to try to get us somewhere different than where we are today. <laughs> well, to, to speak to that just one step further, you know, for our audience members listening to this who want to be more active, but maybe are nervous or haven't kind of found their platform or their way forward into becoming uh, more of an activist for causes that they care deeply about, can you give them any just, you know, one piece of advice about taking that first step? Oh, yeah. Well, the first step is to figure out what it is you care about. There's so many different things to work on. And frankly, we have a lot of work in front of us. So the first thing is to figure out what is making you passionate, what jumps you out of bed each day, what keeps you up at night. And then their second step is to find other people who care about the things that you do and join them. <laughs> I always tell people like, you don't actually have to start something new. There are a million things going on that are um, related to the things you care about and they need your support and they need your hands. So go and join them. And then once you do that, the third step is to expand. So make sure that there are many more people like you who can join those efforts. I always say that there are millions of people out there who are looking for a movement. They are looking for a way to get involved. Our job is to make sure there's multiple entry points, but our job is also to not sit on the sidelines. No change happens by sitting on your couch and throwing your shoes at the television, which I am known to do sometimes. All change happens by rolling up your sleeves and getting involved. The universal truth of getting frustrated and showing, <laughs> throwing your shoes at the TV. I think we've all I'll bend there over certain issues. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. I'd love to talk about supermajority. Women rule believes that having women uh, in all different careers, politics and corporate America at the highest levels is a good thing. Uh, can you explain a little bit about supermajority's goals and where you go kind of post 2020? Yeah, supermajority is a new home for women's activism. And what we are really focused on is making sure that women and our allies are powerful in the political process and powerful in the political system. And I think over this next four years, there's a lot that we have to focus on at supermajority, at the lab, at the action fund, you know, in this movement. I think for one, we are um, frankly, being told that we need to slow down <laughs> and not push too hard for the progress that we were promised. And one thing that I know <laughs> going into this four years is that we have nothing to lose by pushing as hard as possible for the things that we were promised. And not only that, but the things that we deserve. Again, like I said earlier, it's not acceptable to be told to wait when we are the communities that helped push this campaign over the edge and made the intervention that this country needed in terms of the greatest threat to humanity in a generation. And frankly, it's time that we change the way that politics functions where um, only the rich and powerful are actually getting rewarded for their allegiance, while those of us who have been organizing in our communities, making sure that uh, that we are, you know, um, avoiding the red button being pushed, um, get kicked to the side once we're over the finish line. So I think for a lot of us, we are figuring out not just how to be at the table, but how to set the table. And so I, I think while we're all breathing a deep sigh of relief right now, which we should, and we did that. Uh, we should also be um, gearing up for the next phase of this fight, which will be to push this administration to be who they said they were going to be. 
to that point, I mean, you brought up earlier, you know, only $1,200 in, in direct payments have happened. We're living in the middle of a pandemic. And I know we've talked about a lot of other things, but that has been a real core for women role over the past year, just in terms of how women have been impacted, really been on the front lines, not only in their jobs, but also at home. Uh, you know, how have you been impacted by the pandemic? How has your community been impacted? Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be employed, to have a roof over my head. Um, but every time I look out the window, what I see is tent cities that are expanding every single day. I see people who are being evicted from their homes. I see people who um, don't have the health care that they need and they can't access testing. And then I see small businesses closing all around me. In fact, I just uh, saw a a GoFundMe for a small woman-owned black black woman-owned business that I've frequent and I love it. And um, she's not able to access support for her small business to stay open during this pandemic. And so all around me, there are windows being shuttered and it's not because of protests. It's because of um, the economy. And it's because of the fact that we have a leader who uh, not only thought this pandemic was a hoax, uh, but has been using this government to line his pockets at the expense of the needs of our communities. And that's just a fact. And he's also brought his family along with him to benefit off of the pain and misery of every single everyday people. And more and more of us, I think, are feeling that that pinch and that push. And, you know, for me personally, yes, I miss gathering with my friends. Yes, I miss, you know, going to bars after a long day of work. Like I miss all of the the normalcies, right, of what it means to be a human being in community. But bigger than that, I really miss there being any level of uh, logic <laughs> around how it is that we are meeting people's needs in this moment. And, you know, it, it, it strikes me that what's coming up for all of us is uh, a real decision about what the composition of the Senate is going to look like and what and whether or not we're able to change the balance of power. And I'll be honest with you, this is what is at stake. I mean, I, I talked about this on my podcast the other day that, you know, Steve Mnuchin moved four hundred and fifty five billion dollars <laughs> so that Joe Biden administration could not touch it without congressional approval. And, you know, the irony of the whole thing was that they never planned to spend it on us anyway. So what I'm seeing is a real need to provide relief and recovery, but particularly to communities who are already getting left out and left behind. We are quickly running out of time, but I wanted to make sure to get a plug in about your book uh, that was released in October, The Power, The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what your, your goals for writing this was? Yeah, I really wrote this book because it was the book I wanted when I first started organizing 20 years ago. And it is not a BLM book, but it is a story of the lessons that I've learned from 20 years of organizing. It is a way for us to understand how we got here. And it is breadcrumbs on the path to how to get out of here. <laughs> and so I think, you know, even though this has been the wildest time in memory, I think this book is also very much 
knowledge right on time. And what I love about the book is that it's not just a how-to, but I place myself in it. And so you get to learn a little bit more too about me, about this movement, uh, and about the conservative movement that has been shaping all of our lives for at least the last three decades. And I'm really proud that the book is super accessible. And I think it's something that uh, you'll want to make sure to put in somebody's stocking <laughs> over the holiday season. I like it. And you can pick it up at any online bookstore or any everywhere, I assume, right? That's correct. But go to an independent bookstore if you can. And if you're in Oakland or if you're so inclined, uh, please pick it up from Marcus Books, which is the oldest Black bookstore in the country. And when you do, please say hi to Miss Blanche for me. I love that. Well, thank you, Alicia, for taking part in Women Rules Powering Forward the year ahead. Also, a big thank you to all of our speakers who joined us this morning, as well as our sponsors, 3M and Target. Uh, and thank you to the Women Rule community for sticking with us through 2020. We have, uh, I think, grown, done so many amazing different uh, programs that we probably otherwise would not have. Be well and have a safe and happy holiday. Hey, one thing before oh. everybody goes. Hey, Anna. Hi. Uh, <laughs> surprise. Um, uh, reintroduce myself. I'm Carrie Budoff Brown. I'm the editor of Politico. And as many of you know, Anna Palmer is moving on from Politico at the end of this year. And I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge her contributions to Women Rule. Um, a few stats. Uh, since 2013, Anna has been involved in a total of 60 women rule events, including seven summits. Um, and as the uh, leader of the Women Rule podcast, uh, she has done 145 episodes with more than a million and a half downloads uh, since we started. Uh, so Anna, you rule. I am personally grateful that you took on this role more than two years ago. Um, and I am in awe of your determination, your savvy, and your kick-ass spirit. And I speak for many in this community when I say you will be missed, although I know that our paths will cross in the women rule community in the year ahead. So thank you. I, of course, did not want to let this last summit end before I acknowledge your contributions. Thank you. You will be missed. Thank you so much. Um, Thanks to everybody. We really appreciate the whole community here. And of course, I can't wait to be a, uh, a watcher and uh, someone who attends and uh, continues to get so much out of the, the whole Woman Rule program. Great. And we're looking forward to that. And of course, uh, to our audience here and beyond, we're looking forward to 2021. We have the first female, female vice president, uh, the first female head of treasury and Janet Yellen. And we are looking forward to continuing to explore and celebrate each other together in the new year. Thank you so much and have a great day. Women Rule is produced by Zach Stanton. Irene Gucci is the executive producer of Politico Audio. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. Please share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. You can also join the Women Rule community by texting WOMEN to 66866. 